Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. I enjoyed our Sunday school class very much. And now, the message I have shared with you this morning uh, grew out of a recent instruction class that I had. And uh, in that class, I told my students, you know, I think I bit off more than I chew. And I still kind of feel that way about this subject this morning. Uh, but that class, the, the the focus of that class was this verse, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the Bible really demands that you stake your life on its teaching. And it is, it is a watershed encounter, and that either you believe its teaching and its truth and it changes you, or you reject it, and then your unbelief shapes the rest of your life. And so I think it's important for us to look at this question, why do we believe this book? For one thing, I think it's an important question because this book is, is under attack, and, and has been really uh, for, for a long time. It's always been under attack. But I think it is true that in our culture today, from government authorities to school teachers to journalists to nominal Christians, liberal Christians, people have a lot less regard for this book than they did 50 years ago. And so that's one reason for a study like this. The second reason is simply because we are more exposed to those kinds of attacks. On we're less sheltered than we've ever been also. We're less sheltered from those who shrug off this, this book, this Word of God, explain it away, or speak scornfully of it. And there's two kinds of evidence. Uh, broadly speaking, there are two kind of categories of evidence. One is the internal or subjective evidence. Your experience with Jesus, your uh, experience with the Holy Spirit's work in your life, your experience reading the Scripture and being convicted of it, being pierced by it, that is an internal evidence. It is a real thing, and it matters. And it is our bread and butter, you might say, of our faith. It's, it's the kind of daily evidence we encounter that this is true. But we're not going to be looking at that, that category of evidence so much this morning. We'll be looking at some external evidence for the Bible, and I think it has a role, too. I think it can help us when we bump into attacks on the Bible, I think it can help us deal with questions from honest speakers because there are honest speakers out there that have questions about the Bible. And some of them may be close to home. They might be our children someday or our, our friends or whatever. Not everyone out there who has questions about the authority of this book is necessarily out there resisting God and completely blind and rejected, rejecting God. There are some honest speakers out there. And I think it can also help us when, when Satan attacks the internal evidence we have and says, oh, you, it's just all in your head. I think God expects us to look at and recognize and appreciate some of the external evidence that we have. After all, when Jesus came to earth, he did signs and wonders. And that's pretty external, isn't it? And he fulfilled prophecy. That is external evidence. And John, in chapter 20, wrote down signs 
wrote the signs down that Jesus did so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so my goal this morning is hopefully to reassure anybody who has encountered a text in the Bible. Secondly, to reawaken our appreciation for this book. It is a real treasure. And, and thirdly, just to make us aware, you're not going to remember many of the details of what I say this morning, which is totally fine. I'm not expecting you to remember all of that. But I want, what I would like you to remember is that, yes, there is external evidence that makes it sensible to believe this book. So there's going to be um, there's multiple different ways we could, we could uh, different categories of external evidence we could look at. We're going to look at a little archaeology and a little prophecy. And we're not going to look at much of, um, we're not going to look at the resurrection much this morning. I think that it's a very well supported and important historical event and deserves a sermon of its own. I will not focus on that event so much this morning, but maybe the other three areas a bit more. And um, last night, I had a dream that I was in a church service, and I wasn't preaching this time. I've had a dream where it was me preaching, but, um, and suddenly I looked at the clock, and it was 12.40 a.m. It was an evening service. It was 12.40 in the morning, and I got up and said, what is going on here? You know, this is really, it's time for me to go home. Colleen had already left, so hopefully that won't happen this morning. Uh, I am gonna, one thing I'm, I probably will do is when I when I get to the end of this, I'll just close the service and uh, not not have a closing song or or closing uh, comments. Save us a little bit of time. I was going to talk about science a little bit. I'll mostly skip that that category. Uh, I'll just summarize it like this: science and the Bible. That the Bible says. God created the earth, and I believe we have strong external evidence that makes that case. We see highly complicated, sophisticated systems working together. We see a high amount of diversity, that stuff that exceeds our intelligence or our capabilities. The Bible goes on to make some other statements that are science-related. He talks about, it talks about life in the blood, hangs the earth on nothing. He mentioned paths of the sea. Leviticus prescribed sanitation practices that make a lot of sense when you know about germs that we didn't really know much about until the 19th century. So that's science. Now let's talk a bit about archaeology. We'll, we'll spend a, some time here on archaeology, and then we'll spend some time on one of the things I like to, one of the ways I like to look at this subject is to say, if the Bible really was true, if it really was God who wrote this book, what would you expect to see when you when you encounter external evidence, like in science or in archaeology or history? You would expect to see. Harmony. What would if it was not a book written by God, but a bunch of myths put together by various authors over the years? The Bible is about forty different authors, by the way, written over sixteen hundred years. The consistency of the message is amazing. 
But if it was just a book, a book of myths, what would you expect to see? You would expect to see a lot, maybe nonsensical scientific ideas. Um, the sun is a is a fiery chariot, um, you know, driven by some god. That was the Greek idea of the sun for a while, or or the Egyptian idea of the sun was that it would run around and float across the sky. Or you would expect to see ideas that just totally are not supported by archaeology or, or in complete conflict with with uh, what they've dug up. Or you would expect to see a lot of contradicting ideas, and you don't see those. So talk a bit about archaeology. If the, if the Bible was truly God's message, we would expect history to be in agreement. It's history, and it's over half history, right? Over half of its history. We'd expect its history to be in agreement with clear archaeological findings. We would not expect to find evidence for everything that's in this book, because papyrus rocks and ghost skins decay. But where we've got clear, undisputed archaeological findings, we would expect them to be in harmony with what the Bible says, if the Bible's talking about the finding at all. For example, if we have clear evidence that Pontius Pilate died 20 years before the time of Christ, then we'd have to wonder, well, maybe the biblical account of crucifixion isn't accurate. Maybe, and if it's not accurate, then God didn't write the Bible. God didn't, wouldn't write any lies. But instead, what we've got is the Roman historian, um, Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus, Roman historian, Senator, writing around 110 AD, talks about Pontius Pilate crucifying Jesus. Now, one of the ways in which Scholars, liberal scholars, have accused and attacked the Bible through the years is to doubt that, that when the Bible talks about something or someone and they have not found any evidence for it, then they say, well, we think the Bible made this person up and it's not really to be trusted. And so I want to illustrate how that works. I want to illustrate how liberal scholars have attacked the biblical record and how archaeological findings have done that. And to do that, I want to use this backpack, which I've got a collection of items in it. They're little uh, toys, figures that you know, Grace and Sophie play with, just so you know what's going to be coming out of there. And what I've got here is this. This is a message that describes the content of my backpack. And we could, we could pretend that this represents the Bible, and the backpack, we're going to do archaeology on my backpack. So this message says the backpack contains an Egyptian prime minister named Joseph, David, king of Israel, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Lysanias, Petrarch of Abilene, and not a Neanderthal, because the Bible teaches against um, evolution. Now, at this point in time, based on our archaeological findings, which are zero, we don't know if this, if this message is true or not. And there's other evidence that besides archaeology for the Bible, right? But right now, we haven't dug up anything, so we, don't, we can't say one way or another whether we've got support for this message or not. So, I'm going to start uh, pulling stuff out of here. And I'm, I'm hoping this illustrates and helps you remember kind of um, how this has played out over the years. 
Okay, so here's something that's not on the not on the message, right? This is the this is the um, I think this came from a manger scene. This is a camel, and this is not on the message. This is not King David, right? We have no evidence for King David so far, and and so what happened was little scholars said, well, King David is such an important character in the Bible. I mean, he's mentioned all his Bible and. And he must be dismissive because we have not found any evidence for him. I mean, that's, that's kind of a um, that kind of approach is quite a cynical attack on the Bible and and a prejudice, I think. But we haven't found any evidence for King David. Surely we would have found evidence by now. So, so obviously they kept digging, and uh, I'm trying to pick one up. That could represent David. Okay, so we'll, we'll say this is King David. This happened back in 1993, actually. Thank you. I've got a, a museum now. <laughs> I appreciate that. So I'll put them on display here. So back in 1993, the, there, there, was, there was archaeologists working, and I believe this was in Dan, in the region where they were working, and they discovered a, a slab of stone. I think the correct pronunciation for this is a seal, maybe? Anyone knows? It's a seal, it's S-E-E-L-E. It's a slab of stone with an inscription on it, and it talks, it was actually written by, I believe, a Syrian king, describing his conquest over the house of, I'm sorry, the, uh, the king of Israel, I believe Jehoram at the time, and the house of David. About a hundred years after David was gone, he's still calling the southern king and referring to it as the house of David, which tells you David was a real man and really important. He just refers to the southern kingdom as the house of David. He, this, was a, this was a man who was obviously a king, and the, and the Syrian king was impressed by having defeated them. So he wrote this down, and fortunately for us, it was uncovered back in 1993, which is not that long ago. That's a pretty recent discovery for somebody as important in the Bible as David. All right, so this character, I would call him Nabonidus. Nabonidus they, I, don't, I don't know when they found Nabonidus. He was king of Babylon. Well-known king of Babylon. They, they found lots of documents recording him as being the king of Babylon. And here's the problem. He was the king of Babylon at the time at which Persia defeated Babylon. All right? Does that ring a bell with anybody? Persia defeating Babylon, knocking down the walls. But who was the king of Babylon according to Daniel? It was Belshazzar. And Daniel doesn't mention Nabonidus being around at the time. So, so they started to say, well, Belshazzar, we don't have any evidence for Belshazzar. So Daniel made up Belshazzar. We know Nabonidus was the king at the time at which um, Persia defeated Babylon. This is back in the 1800s. The liberal scholars were saying that. The liberal scholars apparently have been around for millions of years. So they kept doing research. And they found, they found 
I believe this is another seal, maybe, an inscription done a, a, a slab with a prayer of Nabonidus on it. I believe this was 1854 on my notes. And the prayer of Nabonidus was to his moon god, praying for the moon god to be benevolent, benevolent to his son, Belshazzar. Nabonidus had a son. His firstborn son was Belshazzar. And as, as the years went by, they, they uncovered more evidence for Belshazzar and discovered that Nabonidus and Belshazzar seemed to have reigned at the same time. He, Nabonidus was sent in retirement. Belshazzar actually was in the city at the time, and Nabonidus seems to have been somewhere else when Persia rolled in and knocked down the walls and killed Belshazzar, which worked out well for Nabonidus, I guess, he was not in the area. But it's, it's interesting to me that Daniel got it right. You know, if he had been writing many years later he, and making up a story, he probably would have put Nabonidus in because he was such a famous king. But to get that detail right, it being Belshazzar is significant. All right, let me, let me do another one. This is, uh, this, is going to be, this is going to be the Tetrarch of Lysania. Now, we have a problem with this, with this character. I'm, I'm kind of picking out the ones that we have problems with. And this Tetrarch of Lysania was written about by Josephus, and he's well-known, Tetrarch of Abilene. And Josephus records him having been executed by Mark Antony, a Roman general, about 30, 35 years, 35 B.C. Now, the problem is Luke chapter 3 mentions John the Baptist starting his ministry during this while Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. So that, that's quite a bit later after this fellow was executed. So people thought Luke is wrong. He's made a mistake, an obvious mistake, but he made a mistake. Lysanias was dead and gone many years earlier. That's the only Tetrarch of Abilene we know about. Then, and I do not have the date for when they, they found this discovery. There was, there was an inscription in the ancient city of Avila, where it would have been the, uh, the capital city of Abilene. And they found this inscription that, that refers to, uh, says, for the salvation of the august lords and all their household, Nymphias, Lysanias, Tetrarch, established this street and other things. And what matters is, it uses this title, August Lord, plural, to August Lord. And they connect that. They say, you know, that actually was the term they would have used for, most likely for Tiberius and his mother, who was the former empress, and they were, they both, I guess, the Emperor Tiberius and his mother, Empress, his father had passed away, his mother's widow. And that being a term they used for the two of them during that time, which would have been the time of John the Baptist. So now we've got evidence that maybe there were two Lysanias. It would seem like there were two. Probably this, this fellow was maybe not as, not as recognized. Nothing so famous about him as being executed by a Roman general. But, um, you know, he's probably descendant of the first one. Now, some people still say, yeah, I think there's just one. But I'm, I'm going to trust Luke with this. It's been an obvious mistake for Luke to have made. He was very careful. 
In fact, I read somewhere that, now I, I don't know this, I didn't, I didn't look to check, double check this one, but uh, apparently the way Josephus starts his history and Luke starts his histories are similar. And so Luke is writing as though he's recording history. Luke is very careful and repeatedly has been shown to be correct. Uh, one of the things he's gotten correct is political titles, using the correct title for the for the authority, for the place at that time. For example, in Macedonia, in Thessalonica, he refers to the temple, I'm sorry, he refers to the magistrates as politarchs. For a while they think that's not the right word, Luke, you shouldn't be using that word for them. And then they, they found inscriptions in Macedonia referring to them as politarchs during that time. Uh, he calls the Ephesus officials temple wardens, apparently it's correct for that. In Cyprus, he refers to the uh, government official there, the proconsul. In Malta, he refers to the leader there as the first man of the island, which is kind of an unusual term, but they, they discovered that as the correct term. Sherwin White, who's a British ancient historian, professor at Oxford, says, In all, Luke named 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands without error. Now, we didn't find an Egyptian prime minister named Joseph. And archaeology has not found him yet. Not, not a clear evidence for Joseph. Does that prove that the Bible's wrong? Does it prove that the backpack does not contain an Egyptian prime minister named Joseph? It doesn't prove it. It doesn't prove that it's wrong. It's just we haven't found him yet. We, just, we, haven't, we didn't find David until 1993. So you can pray that archaeologists would find uh, Joseph because that'd be pretty neat. There are, some, there are some Egyptian legends that would make you think of Joseph. They had a legendary character named Imhotep. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And uh, some of the legends around him were that he was born a common man but rose to a, very, a, a place of very high importance. He helped rescue Egypt from a seven-year famine and partly due to his interpretation of a dream, but in, in the legend it was about his own dream, not Pharaoh's. There are some, some, the time frames don't line up with Joseph. But it is interesting that there are some legends back there that sound a lot like Joseph. There's also a canal, and I don't know how, how, how valuable this little piece of evidence is, but there's, there, was, there was a canal that seems to have been built around the time of Joseph, and for centuries it has been called in Arabic the Bar Yusuf, the Canal of Joseph. And who knows when it got named that? You know, maybe maybe it has been passed down for century after century, or maybe, you know, it got named that more recently. There are numerous figures and places supported by history, uh, spoken of in the Bible's history, that are supported by archaeology. Kenneth Kitchen, who is a Bible scholar, archaeologist, Egyptologist, in Christianity Today, he, I was reading an article in which he wrote, talking about evidence for Haran, where Abraham lived, Abram lived, talking about 20 shekels being the right, place, right price for the right, uh, right price for Joseph at the time he was sold. Numerous kings of Israel and Judah have been confirmed by ancient texts and seals. Assyrian Babylonian accounts speak of the fall of Samaria and Judah. There are records of the Persian conquest of Babylon, of course, and the return of Jews to Judah. The Bible is over half 
history. And if this was a made-up book, you would expect it to be brimming with obvious historical mistakes. And it simply is not. Okay, now we're going to talk about prophecy for a bit. And, and, and this, is, this is my favorite of the, of the two parts here. I want to look at some prophecies made about Jesus and, and then look at the Gospel of John. I picked out the Gospel of John to show these prophecies being fulfilled. And so to do this, I kind of need to talk a bit about the Gospel of John and why it's sensible to believe the Gospel of John was an honest account by an eyewitness. So we need to spend some time on that, otherwise there's no point in saying all well, these prophecies were fulfilled because John could have, I mean, maybe John made it all up. We've got three options here with the Gospel of John, and you could do this with any of the Gospels. You can see the Gospel of John. I don't know if there's easier or harder than the other Gospels. the one I picked. But you've got three options. One is John didn't write his Gospel, but it was invented by Christians many years later. That's one option. Second option would be to say John did write it, but his copy the church got a hold of it and changed it and modified it and made it say whatever they wanted it to say so it looked like those prophecies were being fulfilled. Or a third option is John did write it, but he just made it up. He lied about a lot of the parts. So let's go through each option. The first one, John didn't write the letter. It was invented by the church sometime later. In fact, John doesn't actually say in the Gospel of John that I'm John and I wrote this letter. He doesn't. But there's, there's strong evidence for it being John. For one thing, it's written from the aspect of someone who has access to Jesus' inner circle. And like a Peter, James, or John, my Zondervan study Bible points out how in the, uh, the house in Bethany, the alabaster box that was broken. John talks about the perfume filling the room, which is probably something that would, that would stand out to you, and you would, you know how smells connect you memories with it? You would, you would write that if you were an eyewitness, and probably not otherwise. You wouldn't think of it, maybe, if you were just making a story up. The, the Gospel of John also provides a clue in it about its author, that it's kind of hard to imagine an imposter coming up with on the zone. I mean, he has to be pretty cunning. One of the things that he does, the author of John does, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't do, Matthew, Mark, and Luke go out of their way to refer to John the Baptist as John the Baptist. And they call the other John, John. John, writing the Gospel of John, the only times I can say John here, does not call John the Baptist John the Baptist. He just calls him John. Kind of assuming, you would think, that maybe readers know who he is, and he doesn't need to say, oh, this was John the Baptist. This is John. And that would, you know, if, if it was somebody making up a story, I don't know if they would, they would think of that little piece of evidence to lead people down the wrong track or thinking that John wrote it when he didn't. John does keep the two Judases apart. Judas, not a theory, he says. John actually never refers to himself in this letter. He refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved. That also makes sense if you're the author. 
Whoever wrote the Gospel of John knew what he was talking about. I was re- I'm reading a book by F.S. Bruce, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? And he talks about the fact that John was written by someone who must have grown up in Israel, being very familiar with the places and distances between places in Israel. Uh, Bruce says, he knows Jerusalem well. He fixes the location of certain places in the city with the accuracy of one who must have been acquainted with it before its destruction in A.D. 70. And the writer knows about Jewish peace and Jewish uh, purification rites and uh, manners of burial and so on, customs. That's more evidence that John wrote it. And maybe the most important evidence, most important evidence that we have is the early church fathers confirmed that John wrote this book. Uh, Tertullian, Irenaeus, a man named Papias, all talk about as the writer being John. Irenaeus has, has a indirect connection with John that he was, Irenaeus was taught by Polycarp, who was a disciple of John's. Other early church fathers also confirmed that John wrote 1 John. There's evidence for John writing 1 John. And the language between John and 1 John, are, there's a lot of figures of speech and so on that overlap. So I think the case for John having written this gospel is a very strong one. So the second option is John wrote it, but it was meddled with by early Christians to make it support their ideas about Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's say John wrote a document or dictated it, and let's say, yes, it is an eyewitness account, but then a bunch of conspiring Christians got a hold of this document and used whiteout or whatever to modify it to say whatever they wanted it to say to make it look like Jesus really was the Messiah. Maybe to make it look like Jesus fulfilled prophecy. Now, it seems to me that for that kind of effort to be successful, they would have had to have gotten hold of almost all copies of John's writing, collected them all, changed them, destroyed the originals, and propagated their copies. So that seems to really work. Otherwise, you'd have Lots of conflicting, very conflicting copies of the Gospel of John floating around throughout the centuries. And it would require a very organized effort to collect all of these, destroy the originals, spread around your own copies, and modifying them skillfully enough to dupe everyone. And maybe you could do that if Christianity had just stayed in Jerusalem, a fairly localized effort to go to all the Christian churches rip out their copies of John and replace them with your own. But that's not what happened. And Christianity just exploded out of Jerusalem, went everywhere, and each of these churches put one of their own copies of the gospel, whatever, whatever writings of the, of the original they could get a hold of, they wanted copies of it. And people were very interested, very concerned about what the apostles had to say back in those days. Just like we are today, they weren't any different, really. Uh, the man I mentioned earlier, Papias, did a, a great study uh, researching those who had either been eyewitnesses or those who had spoken to eyewitnesses. And he wrote, he put together this big book, a uh, five-volume, or five-scroll, I don't know, called The, the um, Expositions on the Oracles of Jesus. And he's the one who wants to testify that John wrote his gospel. Now, unfortunately, that work of Papias 
we only have remnants of it left in quotes from other writings. Original work got lost back in the Middle Ages. This is really a terrible thing. It would be great to have that. But if some of the early Christians had meddled with the Gospel of John, um, they would have had to have gotten it right off the press. And they would have had to have done the same thing for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because John and, and those other apostles agree. And we would, we would think we would have lots of different copies of New Testament manuscripts that are significantly different from each other. And we just don't. And we have early church fathers quoting these, these manuscripts, quoting manuscripts we don't have anymore. And their quotes still line up with what we do have. So the idea that the church got a hold of the gospel and changed it. It's a handy idea for people who are scoffers and are not interested in the truth. But it doesn't work if, if you're really concerned about the truth. Thirdly, the third notion would be, well, John wrote it. He was an eyewitness, but he just kind of made it all up. And, and that, I mean, why? Why write this, this gospel account and then live it and then suffer for it? Why do that? It makes no sense. John suffered for the cause of Christ. And if he lied, and the other apostles lied, and Matthew lied, and Mark lied, and Luke lied. So at that point, it gets ridiculous. So now, John, we're going to believe John, an eyewitness of Jesus. And now let's look at Isaiah 53. You might want to turn there. I haven't made you turn much. So go ahead and open up Isaiah 53. And after we're done looking at Isaiah, now, here's the thing we don't have to do with Isaiah. We don't have to prove that the early church didn't meddle with Isaiah because the earliest copy of Isaiah we've got was written 100 years before the time of Christ, at least maybe 300 years before the time of Christ. And same for, for the book of Psalms. We'll look at Psalms 22 also. So, Isaiah 53. Let's start with verse, verse 3. I think Isaiah 53, I'm using the New King James. And then for whatever reason, I'm using John out of the New American Standard, but you can still get the point. Isaiah 53, verse 3, He is despised and rejected. Prophecy. John 18, 35. Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? <clears throat> verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. By his strength we are healed. John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. Isaiah 53, verse 7. <clears throat> he was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. We just don't say, and as a sheep before his ears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. John 19, verses 10 and 11. Pilate answered, Pilate asked, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said, Do not speak to me. And he goes on to say, Well, I have authority to release you. Matthew 26 records the high priest growing frustration with Jesus' silence. Do you not answer? But Jesus kept silent. 
And Matthew 27 records Pilate saying, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer Pilate. And Pilate was quite amazed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Okay, how about Isaiah 53, verse 8? For he was cut off from the land of the living through the transgression of my people, he was stricken. John 19.30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He just knew he was accomplishing something. Isaiah 53, verse 9. This one is a looser connection. So there's some disagreement about whether this the interpretation of this prophecy and its fulfillment. But Isaiah 53, verse 9 says, They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, which might be a reference to the fact that Jesus was crucified with robbers, but ended up in the tomb of a rich man. Okay, so now let's look at Psalm 22. We can flip back to Psalm 22. So what did we get to? We got about five prophecies right here. So Psalm 22, and, and like, like Isaiah, we have the manuscript of Psalm that easily predates the time of Christ. So no Christians were tempering with the manuscripts. Tampering with the manuscripts to make them fit with the crucifixion of Jesus. So remember, your options for the book of John are either he didn't write it, contrary to a lot of evidence, or the early Christians tampered with it, although our copies were essentially all the same, or John was a liar. Those are three bad options. The best option is to believe him. So Psalm 1, my, Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which John records Jesus having said that, hanging on the cross. You jump down to verse 7. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Now, John doesn't really record this one. But faithful Luke, the same one who named 32 countries, 54 cities, nine islands without error, says, The people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him. The soldiers also mocked him. One of the criminals who was hanging there was hurling abuse at him. Jump down to verse 15. My strength is dried up like a posture. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. John 19:28. After Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had been had already been accomplished to fulfill the scriptures, said, "I am thirsty." Verse 16. For dogs encompass me; a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. John, of course records the crucifixion of Jesus. They crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Now, to be fair, just in case you Google this, there is some, some discussion about the translation of Psalm 22, verse 16, the Pierce. So those who are uh, Jews who will, do not want to believe in Jesus will quickly argue that that is a mistranslation because actually that Hebrew word is very close to another word which means lions. So that could mean instead of they pierced my hands and feet, it could say they are like lions at my hands 
and feed. Now, there, and, and sure enough, there are Hebrew manuscripts that have it translated that way. They're like lions in the hand of beasts. The oldest Hebrew manuscripts do not. The oldest ones say pierce. And the Septuagint also says pierce, which would have been translated from Hebrew into Greek a couple hundred years before the time of Christ. So there's good evidence for pierce. Also, I don't know why you say they're like lions at my hands and feet. I mean, you say they're like lions at my elbow, and you get the point across easily enough. I don't know why you have to say lions at my hands and feet. I think pierce my hand and feet makes more sense. And also, John, when he records the soldier putting the spear to Jesus' side, points to another prophecy that talks about piercing, and that's Zechariah. They shall look on him whom they pierce. That's John 19.37. So then we drop down to verse 18. Did John make this part up in his gospel? They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19.24. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Prophecy confirms the Bible. We looked just at a, at a small segment of prophecy focused on the crucifixion of Jesus, and it confirms that not only is the biblical account true, but Jesus is who he said he is. So for me, as I, as I was studying this subject, it was, I think internal evidence, like I said, is, is maybe our bread and butter. I think external evidence can minister to us in a different sort of way. And I, do, I did find it, I found it uh, refreshing to do this study and to find these kinds of external confirmations for taking this book very seriously. You see harmony between science and the Bible. You see evidence in archaeology for the Bible, repeatedly the writers have proven trustworthy, and we see prophecy fulfilled in the Bible, recorded by faithful witnesses. So we're not just making a, a, a blind leap of faith here, trusting in something for which there is no external evidence. There is evidence that these words are trustworthy and were inspired by God, and, and we can take our lives on this book and be shaped by it. And the promises then, and, and be reassured by just the reality of promises like Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So let's read this book and let's treasure it. And let's take it to heart and let's be shaped by it. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching 
for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's stand for closing prayer. Lord, I thank you for this, this scripture that you have given us, uh, for the promises that you have put into it, for, for the evidence that we have to take this seriously. And I thank you uh, for the witness of your spirit and this daily work in our hearts and, and the changes that we see in our lives as we respond to the spirit. I thank you for that evidence. I thank you for the the outside evidence also. And I pray that you would keep our faith strong even as we live in a time in which uh, people do not have much respect left for this book. And help us to uh, pass this faith on to our children and to others around us. And we thank you that you are faithful and um, you meet our needs, our spiritual needs, and you know about the, the doubts we might be struggling with. I thank you that there are answers. I pray that you would uphold our faith. I pray that it's all in